John chapter 7, and this morning we will once again talk about Christ as our living water. That's the, the theme of the passage that we're in. And I was thinking about the idea of thirst and my experience with thirst and, and one memorable experience with thirst. We were at Mount Rainier National Park several years ago when we lived in Washington. That was one of the things we loved to do in the summertime was to go hike around Mount Rainier, which you may have heard of Mount Rainier. It's about 14,000 feet in the horizon there. It's the beautiful snow-capped mountain and there's an amazing national park surrounding it. And we would go there and hike around and we loved doing that. It's the most beautiful scenery I've ever seen in my life, really. And I've traveled around quite a bit. And I would say it's probably the most beautiful place I've ever seen, at least from, from my perspective, in, in my opinion. And uh, if I were to try to like, explain what that's like, because most of you haven't been to the Pacific Northwest, but you remember the, uh, the show on PBS with Bob Ross, the painter? Remember that guy with the big hair and everything? He'd talk about the happy little trees and everything he would paint. Uh, it's kind of like stepping into one of his paintings, I mean, just breathtaking beauty of the snow-capped mountains and evergreen trees and crystal clear rivers fed by the glacial melt-off. So just an amazing, stunningly beautiful place. And so we loved hiking around there. It was literally like foretastes of heaven. But one time, I remember we were on a certain hike that we had never taken before, and we came through the woods and we're heading back to the visitor center, and we had quite a ways to go, and we came to this open area, kind of like a meadow, I guess you'd call it. There weren't any trees overhead, and it was just a really long section of the hike, and it was sunny and hot, and we were walking, and I noticed somewhere in the middle of that section of the hike, I noticed I didn't have any water left. I had like a few drops of water left, and so we're hiking and hiking and hiking, and I remember the feeling where I was trying to kind of take in still the the scenery and the beauty at at a distance there, but I just became obsessed with my own thirst because when you're that thirsty it's almost like you can't think of anything else your body is telling you i need a drink badly or i will die not to be dramatic but it is true technically speaking you go long enough without water you'll die and so your body starts telling you that and you're sort of obsessed with your thirst and your need for drink and i remember getting back to the visitor center and buying some water and just guzzling. And they could have charged me $100 for a small bottle of water, and I would have happily paid it. It's like, just please give me water. And I just guzzled it down to, to refresh myself with that, which I desperately needed. And so I was thinking about the idea of thirst. And we, in our culture, of course, we are very wealthy here in America, thankfully. And so water is readily available to us. So we don't often feel that sense of thirst, but people in Christ's time would be more familiar with it in that desert, desert, yeah, desert wow, that's my, that's my Rhode Island accent coming back there, pretty strong, <laughs> desert climate, um, arid, very dry conditions. They were familiar with thirst and what that felt like. And so in this context, Jesus is once again going to uphold himself as living water, water for the soul, water that all of them and all of us desperately need. At the end of our passage, let me just jump ahead to this and then we'll work our way through it. But if you jump ahead to verse 37, it's where Jesus stands up and cries out and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So that's where we're heading. That's where this passage is taking us to once again see Jesus as our living water. But before we walk through it, we're going to begin in verse 25. But before we start the study, notice 
verse 24 again. The end of last, the last sermon two weeks ago, the end of that passage is verse 24, where Jesus says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, this will prepare us to appreciate what he's saying regarding himself as living water. So track with me, all right? He says here, Do not judge according to appearance, but with righteous judgment. Let me break this down for us. The word judge which we often think of just a judge in a courtroom setting and kind of a final verdict being given. And, of course, that is one use of the term. In biblical times, the term had to do with, technically had to do with a a distinguishing or a choosing or a deciding. If you look in the dictionaries, Bible dictionaries or lexicons, you see definitions like this for the word judge, to separate, to make a choice or a decision, one lexicon put it this way, to pick out by separating, to distinguish, to say there's, there's this and there's this. There's this category and this category, or this thing and this thing. And he says, do not judge, do not decide, do not categorize things based upon appearance, according to appearance. And the word appearance has to do with that which you see. It's, it's from the same root for seeing. It's that which is on the surface. Sometimes it's used for a face, that which a person sees. Do not judge according to what you see. Another way to say it would be do not judge according to externals. Do not judge according to your natural senses, such as your sight. No, judge righteous judgment, or could be translated, judge with right judgment. He's challenging the faulty judgment of the people. And this is our natural tendency, is to judge according to appearances, is to look at the outside. A few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, the religious people were preoccupied with glory and human glory, like externals, impressive people, the most intelligent, learned rabbis, and, and all the rituals they were participating in. They were, they were obsessed with the externals, the physical dimensions and aspects of those practices. And we talked about their scorekeeping tendency and how they were like measuring and you had the hierarchy and certain ones who were supposedly doing better at this thing of checking off the boxes of righteousness and others who were doing worse. And so there was a sort of sense of competition and, and it was all part of the world system and it was their Judaistic version of that, but it was all goes back, all goes back to the beginning, all goes back to the garden and the fall. It's all part of this world system. You have your secular versions of it, you have your religious versions of it, and Jesus was saying here, do not judge the way you're naturally inclined to judge. Don't judge according to appearances, according to the outside. And this is just for a moment, I'll say, important for us to remember because even today we're, we're tempted to do that, whether in religious, the religious sphere or the irreligious sphere, as we talk about often, we're, we're drawn to, to, I don't know, Hollywood celebrities who are beautiful or strong or impressive in some way gifted in some way. We're drawn to political leaders who, who seem to hold out promise of, of strength and, and ability to conquer and achieve, and we're, we admire them, and we're drawn to their strength and their outward qualities. That's true. And then in the religious sphere, it could be the same, and so we have all sorts of temptations in that way as well. Some of us have been talking recently about this um, documentary, we could call it, uh, Shiny Happy People, which just deals with a past that many of us have had within fundamentalism, and it's kind of the the, um, sadly, it's about the rise and the fall of the Duggar family who were on a reality TV show years ago and they were well-known throughout the country and well-loved. And, and when, you, when you see the way 
the documentary portrays, because I never watched it back at the time, but when they portray what that was like as the show gained popularity, people were drawn to this amazing family. They had a lot of children, and everybody was, on the, on the surface, happy and smiley, and everything was perfect on the outside. They didn't seem to argue or fight. It seemed to have only these amazing, gleaming moments of success from a moral standpoint or from a religious standpoint. And, and as time went on and the story played out, all sorts of dark secrets came out, and that's what the documentary is revealing. And it's kind of mixed emotions when you watch it, but we were talking about it in terms of its helpfulness in making us aware of our human fragility and what our flesh is made of and the contrast between the darkness of us and the light of Jesus and the glory of who He is and how much we all desperately need Him and how we should beware of the temptation to be captivated by superficial, to believe what our eyes see on the outside versus what God says is true in Scripture and what Christ says is true. Well, along those lines, when he says this, he exposes or challenges the faulty judgment of man, but along with that, what he's inviting us to is his form of judgment, true judgment, which looks to the heart, which sees the inside. And, and um, if, if in a, in a manifestation of their faulty judgment earlier in chapter 7 is when you see them in verses 11 and 12 judging Jesus, uh, look at verses 11 and 12. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. So you see what I was talking about regarding the definition of judging. That's what they were doing as they sat in judgment over Jesus. Well, some were saying, oh, he's good. Others were saying, no, he's bad. That's a manifestation of that faulty human judgment. Christ is inviting them to true judgment, and we see him exercising true judgment just a little bit later. Look at verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That's the way it is in the world. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus says of himself, there is no unrighteousness in the one who seeks the glory of the other. In this case, he seeks the glory of his Father, and there is no unrighteousness in him. He too is giving a judgment. He too is distinguishing or separating and saying there's the righteous, there's the unrighteous, there's no unrighteousness in me. And then he goes on in the next verse, in verse 19, to essentially say, and there is unrighteousness in the rest of you. Because he says in verse 19, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. None of you keeps it. Why do you seek to kill me? So do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the righteous one, and there's the other category of unrighteous, and guess who's in the other category? Everybody. Everybody. Even the people at that time, they would have esteemed as the most successful, the most devout, the most seemingly righteous, and he says, but they're not righteous. He says, in me there is no unrighteousness, which is to say, I am the righteous one. So, so here we have in this text itself, illustrations and examples of true judgment and false judgment. Human judgment contrasted with God's judgment. What is true? What is actual? So that sets for us the context. And, and it helps us appreciate why in this religious crowd there is controversy. And so first let's look at the opposition in verse 25. So it says, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? 
Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Okay, pause there for a moment. There's all this discussion, all this chatter there amongst the people. And remember, they're there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. It's time of celebration prescribed by God in the Old Testament to remember God's provisions for them in the wilderness when they wandered. And they were living in temporary habitations in tents. God took, took care of them. And they were here as they were, every year. They were here spending seven days at this feast. And here they are, and there's all this chatter and questioning and still sitting in judgment over Jesus. In reality, what should have happened was they should have been questioning and doubting their own prior beliefs, their own traditions, their own understanding, and trusting in Jesus. But what was happening was the opposite of that. They were trusting in their own opinions, their own understanding, their own traditions, and questioning Jesus. I mean, the irony of that, right? I mean, the God who had prescribed this feast is there in their midst, and they are challenging and questioning and opposing Him. And so they say, well, we know where He's from. They knew some things about His background, from Galilee. And they're saying, this doesn't match up with who the Messiah is supposed to be. And there's uh, both, see, there's some in Scripture and some Extra-biblical literature reveals that they believe when the Messiah would come, that he would emerge immediately, that he would come in kind of a mysterious way, but he would emerge immediately with kind of scepter in hand, and he would, of course, cast off the Romans, and all of his power would be exercised to uphold the leadership that was already in place, that was their understanding of how it would work, and he would cause them to rule and reign. And they were looking forward to that. And this Jesus was not fitting with what they expected at all because the types of people he was spending his time with, as we've talked about previously, tax collectors and prostitutes, they couldn't deny that he was performing miracles. There's a lot of talk of his miracles, a lot of discussion of what he was up to. But there was also this debate about, well, how did he do these miracles? Remember, at one place it says, well, he cast out demons by Satan himself. I mean, they believed that perhaps he got this power in some evil way. There's all this questioning, all this judging going on as they sat over and sort of scrutinized Jesus and were trying to figure out who is this guy. And some were believing and some were not. Right down to his background and knowing, hey, we know his family, know where he comes from. I mean, come on, he, there's nothing special about this guy. At best, he's a, he's a counterfeit. So continue on, and this, we'll just see the back and forth here. Verse 28, Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Well, that too is, is fascinating, strong, penetrating words by the Lord Jesus here. Where he's saying to these religious people, all this is in the name of God, but you don't really know God. In John chapter 8, verse 42, similar context, debating with Religious Jews, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. If you knew God, you'd receive me. That's what he's saying. And your opposition is evidence that you don't. Verse 30, not surprisingly, so they were seeking to seize him. 
And yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't the appointed time, so they weren't able to take him. Verse 31 says, But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? I mean, they were persuaded. All the, all the miracles, the healings. They were convinced, well, look at, look at the life-giving power he has and how he's using that power to heal people. Miracles of mercy and compassion. Continue on. Verse 32, Pharisees. So here we have you know, the religious leaders kind of par excellence. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Kind of like their version of the Capitol Police. They sent these officers to go take him. Couldn't handle any more of this controversy. They couldn't allow him to speak freely any longer. They were enraged, threatened by him, threatening their sense, their stronghold on the religious community. Threatening their sense of pride. People were looking up to them, esteeming them. And if they believed what Jesus was saying, he had accused them of not being righteous, not really keeping the law. I mean, how are they supposed to tolerate that? What other credibility do they have? I mean, that's their main qualification. And he stripped them of it. Not happy about it. They were not happy about it at all. So they sent officers to seize him. Jesus said, verse 33, For a little while longer I am with you, Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? So Jesus is saying, "I'm, I'm going to my father if you knew him, you'd, you'd receive me. But you're rejecting me, proving that you don't know him. And I'm going back to him. When I go back to him, you can't come. This is, this is offensive. This is confusing. Seems pretty clear what he's saying. But they're confused and they say, uh, where, is he, where is he going? What's, is he saying he's going to go to the dispersion, which are like the fringe kind of Jews? Is he going to go out to the fringe Jews? Is he going to go out to the Greeks? Remember, in their, in their minds, they had pride in their pedigree. In their heritage, they were the insiders. The Greeks were the outsiders. The dispersion Jews, they were like on the fringes. They were kind of like flirting with the outsiders. So he wouldn't, I mean, if he's going to go to them, it just proves our point. He can't be our Messiah. He can't be. Because if he was, he would be, he would be um, rallying the troops with us. He, he would be in solidarity with us. And, and instead, he's challenging us and questioning us and probing and pulling down the facade and exposing us and embarrassing us and how would I mean the Messiah would never do that would he notice now the the offering of, of Jesus here this is where it's just amazing there's some fascinating truth and imagery here it says now on the last day the great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried out saying if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink let me let me read to you a summary illustrating the water rituals associated with the Feast of Booths, okay? So there were many water rituals 
especially on the last day of the feast. And I want to describe them for you. So I'm going to read you this excerpt. This is just kind of a compilation from different commentaries and historians. This is what happened during the feast. And I want you got to hear this because if, if you're going to really appreciate what Jesus is doing here, you got to, you got to hear and appreciate this, okay? It says, Every day of the feast there was a water ritual where the priest marched in a procession to the south border of Jerusalem to a spring called the Gihon Spring. There the priest filled a golden pitcher with fresh water from the spring as a choir chanted Isaiah 12.3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. After drawing the water, the procession moved back up the hill to the water gate, the entrance of the temple used for bringing water from nearby cisterns. They entered at this gate while being followed by crowds of people carrying branches representing the booths in one hand and citrus fruit branches in the other hand representing the fruitfulness of harvest. The people would shake the branches and sing psalms of praise to the Lord, which reflected His loving kindness, His protection, and His provisions for them as they wandered in the wilderness. Psalms like Psalm 114 would be recited which includes these words, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. After this, the procession and the crowd would all re-enter the temple, and there in the temple, the priest would climb the altar steps and pour the water onto the altar while the crowd surrounded him, continually singing out with praise to God. And on the last day of the feast which according to verse 37 is the very day Jesus made this invitation. On that last day, the priest prolonged and emphasized this ritual even more, marching around the altar seven times before pouring the water out. This offering was all in response to God's gracious provision in the wilderness and also in anticipation of His blessings to come. Because you see, there were numerous Old Testament promises about the blessings of God to be poured out like water on the people of Israel during the Messianic age. It was in this environment, with all this rich symbolism, that Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And it's fascinating, isn't it? There he is, the God who is behind all this, the God who who um, created these people. The God who established the nation of Israel miraculously. Who preserved them miraculously. The God who provided for them at every turn, despite their unbelief and their fickleness and their rebellion and their idolatry, who was faithful. A God who loved them was there in their midst in the flesh, tenting with them, as it says in John chapter 1, Jesus dwelt or tented with His people. The Word became flesh and tented with us, and we beheld His glory. They are beholding glory, and many of them are not realizing it. And He stands up after all these water rituals have been completed, and He says, I am the water you need. I'm the only one who can quench the thirst of your soul. And it's in fulfillment of all these promises. And I want to just read you a few of them. There are many. I just want to read you a few from Isaiah and then one from Zechariah. 
Isaiah 30, verse 25, on every lofty mountain, on every high hill, there will be streams running with water. Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 7, say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, the recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. He's picturing waters flooding into the desert environment. All symbolic, representing the fulfillment, the refreshment, the satisfaction, the life-giving nature of God coming to His people and uniting them with Himself. Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out My Spirit on your offspring and My blessing on your descendants. Chapter 49, verse 10, They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or the sun strike them down. For He who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. And finally, the one from Zechariah which fits so well with this passage in John 7. Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 9, And in that day, Living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and His name, the only one. Remember what we said earlier. There's only one who's righteous. Spiritually speaking, inherently, there's only one who is alive. There's only one who is filled with love, and it is Jesus. And He is right there in their midst. And He says, if anyone is thirsty, come to Me and drink. And I've got to imagine in that audience on that day, there's a whole mix of people. There are people, again, who are opposing Him, criticizing Him, muttering, grumbling, complaining, conspiring to, to seize Him, to take Him and arrest Him. There are those. And there are others probably hurting, struggling, broken, very aware of their unrighteousness. Perhaps having committed egregious sin in the recent past. Perhaps suffering due to broken relationships, broken family. Perhaps feeling judged by all the religious leaders. Perhaps feeling like they couldn't just, they couldn't quite cut it, they couldn't quite keep up with the checklist and the scorekeeping and the glory seeking. They just couldn't do it anymore. They were just empty. And they needed to know there was something to all this ritual, to all this tradition, to all these practices. They needed some substance. And Jesus speaks to them and says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Remember it says in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To any this morning who are just awakened to that emptiness inside, if left to ourselves, if left even to our, whether it's our secular fantasies or our religious fantasies, secular goals or religious goals, feeling empty, feeling disappointed, feeling dissatisfied, 
hurting, struggling, brokenness of sin, sin in us, sin around us, spoiled relationships, wives, wives who are lonely and feel beaten down by their husbands and by life, husbands who feel beaten down by their work or the lack of respect or the unthankful nature of it all or the aches and the pains, I mean, whatever. People beat down, broken down, humbled by life's circumstances and personal sin. To those, Jesus says, come to me. If you're thirsty, come. I'll give you a drink. I mean, in one sense, it's, it's kind of, you can understand, you can put yourself in their shoes and you can, you can appreciate why they were ticked off. It's like, in one sense, it was like he was stripping away what they valued so dearly, what was so important to them, what gave them some sense of security or stability, this religious system, this uh, messianic hope that, okay, someday he's going to come off and and he's going to come and, sorry, and put off the the bad guys out there. He's going to take care of all the evil people out there. But he came to first address the evil within their hearts, which is why the Pharisees hated him and why the prostitutes and the tax collectors said, I need you under no delusion that they were somehow good or had something to offer God, but were awakened to their need for grace. Elsewhere in Isaiah, it says, uh, come, come and, and, and drink this water. Come and take this water, which comes to you without cost. It's freely offered to all who will come with empty hands. He goes on, he says, uh, he who believes in me, as the scriptures said in verse 38, uh, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. There is no lack in the provision of God. There is no danger in trusting solely in Jesus. There is no danger in that. As we've talked about before, it, it might seem scary, and I'm sure to many of you it does. To me, it still does in some ways. To these people back then, it certainly did. To, to, to just use the illustration of the, the trust fall. You know what the trust fall is? The exercise sometimes people do on sports teams or kind of um, team building exercise where one person stands behind another and the person standing in front is to turn this way and just sort of close their eyes and just fall backwards and trust that the person behind them is going to catch them. And I've done that before, and it's a kind of a weird feeling. And maybe you've done that before, and, or you're just kind of imagining what that feels like to just, to just give yourself and just let go like that and just trust that someone else is going to... Jesus is here inviting them to uh, a trust fall. To fall right into the waters of the Spirit and the provision of God. To believe that He is enough. And then when we come to Christ and we believe in Him, that the Spirit is granted to us with all of His life and all of His love and all of His joy and all of His peace, it is given to us. And there is no lack in His provisions. And He says, from us, this water will flow. The water of the fruits of God's Spirit it will flow. So I understand this, um, this is 
great teaching, but it's challenging teaching of Jesus here, but he's inviting us. Even in this moment, he has compassion on us. He understands when we feel like things are being stripped away, when the the facade is being pulled down, when we're acquainted with the emptiness of all of our secular fantasies, all of our religious fantasies, when, when we know that, I just, boy, there's just, there's just nobody I can really trust. Not, not entirely in this human world. And there's nothing that really fulfills, not entirely. And he says to us, I'm the living water. I'm all you need. I can satisfy. I'm the righteous one. You can trust me. And there will be fruitfulness as a result. And I'll close on this. The, uh, the Jewish people at that time who were most fiercely opposing Jesus, they believed the Messiah would, would deal with the problems outside of them, first of all. That's what they were expecting, anticipating, looking forward to. And the people who actually benefited from Christ's ministry were the ones who were convinced that they needed help on the inside. They realized that their biggest problem was not outside of them, but inside of them. And similarly today, God invites us to see that that is our biggest problem. And that God has more than provided for that problem through Jesus. He's provided life in exchange for our death. Righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. Love in exchange for our hate. Joy in exchange for our joylessness. Fullness in exchange for our emptiness. And so we come to him in a fresh way this morning. And we believe in him and we worship him for all that he is for us. Such a great savior. I hope that's encouraging to you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. It's penetrating truth. Our natural minds so easily deceived, so easily distracted. We are so often preoccupied with human glory, human achievement. We're even enamored so frequently by the trappings of religion, the externals, the traditions, the rituals, because they give us some sense of pleasure or some sense of predictability or some some sense of security. And yet if we're honest, as we look within our own hearts, we realize there is still a great deal of sinfulness that our fallen nature is still abiding with us and doing its thing. There's a great deal of emptiness, a great deal of um, lust, cravings, desires, fantasies, believing lies that somehow we can be fulfilled by our own efforts, our own achievements, or things that we can find in this world. And you've made it very clear. You've stripped it all away. You've removed all exits. In a sense, you've cornered us to preach the good news to us to preach the gospel to us, to invite us to behold your Son, to see his glory, to be amazed by his grace, to be amazed by his 
his patience and mercy, giving himself to these people, many of whom didn't even want him, many of whom hated him, were conspiring in these moments to murder him, and he continued offering your love. And that is amazing. And we see ourselves in that crowd and knowing our natural tendency is to join in all the opposition and hatred of Christ, knowing that's our natural tendency. We're thankful for your spirit. We're thankful for the softening. We're thankful for your soul ability to take out the heart of stone and to put in a heart that that is fleshly and pliable, a heart that sees and believes. Thank you for helping us to see Christ, to believe in him, to see that he is living water, to trust in him and to have tastes of that living water. So thank you so much for your gospel, God. Thank you so much for your good announcement, your proclamation, your word of provision. And we receive it this morning, and we give you thanks, and we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.